Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning for the study of God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the opportunity to mention privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your Word that is alive and powerful, that You never leave us or forsake us. We don't know what lies ahead. However, we do know that Your grace is sufficient in all things. We pray that You will help us to concentrate this morning, that the spiritual dynamics that we learn here will sink deep into our souls so that we are able to use them. We can rise above our circumstances and have a personal sense of eternal destiny and not get discouraged, not get dismayed, but realize that we are the victors through our faith in Jesus Christ. And now we are to carry on until the time that we can glorify Him. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I thought this would be a good time to show you a couple of photographs of people that we support. We support Tom and Sharon Jacobs with Wycliffe Ministries. They are in probably one of the most dangerous and God-forsaken places on earth, which is Darfur. That's where the it's, it's total uh, misery there for the most part. And you have y'all are looking at the picture. I might as well put it up. <laughs> I see the eyes cutting it over that way. Um, this is a picture of some of their group, and it's the Wyclef. Missionaries from all around the world gathered together at the Uganda-Tanzania branch conference in July. That's Tom. I don't know if you can see him. It might be a blur from there. But this is Tom, and that's Sharon, and that's their son, Jordan. Isn't that his name, Jordan? Okay. <clears throat> Tom and Sharon Jacobs. This is Tom uh, teaching... Sudanese Bible translators at the Translating Center in Juba, Sudan. Uh, Darfur is a, is a part of uh, Sudan, and it's uh, heavily concentrated with Muslims. And they do a tremendous, tremendous uh, mission because there are do y'all remember anybody how many thousands of languages there are only in sudan I, I, it was it's in the thousands of different languages just in the sudan and they go in and they take these people some of them don't even have uh, an alphabet they don't even have uh, uh, their language reduced to writing and they go in and they uh, translate the Bible into their language so that they can hear it in their language. And that means that, that the people who uh, 
have already benefited from uh, their ministry. So there's nothing like hearing the Bible in your own language. Here is Tom. Uh, he helps Enos translate Second Corinthians in uh, Calico language. I have no idea what language that is, but it's one of the many. And here is Sharon, who serves as the UTB personal coordinator. Uh, that recently, uh, as if they don't have enough on their plate already, their son uh, cut his hand on a Coke bottle, broken Coke bottle, and they had to uh, uh, fly him to South Africa in order to have it uh, uh, taken care of, and then he came back. So um, if you think you've got problems, you're not the only one. The other uh, missionary that we support is Pastor Naboth. That's a picture of Pastor Naboth. You in the back might not be able to see anything but a white suit. I don't know. <laughs> but he's in there. Uh, we've been supporting uh, Pastor Naboth for uh, at least six years. And he does a, a great ministry. He's, he's built an orphanage. He's built at least one church. And he goes to conferences. And sometimes he, he hosts conferences to hundreds of pastors from five or six different countries in Africa. These are a few pictures that uh, he sent. Uh, this kind of gives you the idea what they have. They don't even have a, a building. This group doesn't. I don't know if you can uh, see it or not, but this, this is a speaker out in the trees. To where I don't know how many people are back here. I'm a little bit concerned about this platform he's standing on. <laughs> but I guess it, it made it okay. Here uh, is another. They have an umbrella to keep the sun off of them. Look at how she, how she is dressed. They may be in the bush, but they dress for church. Here, here they're in a tent. This is Pastor uh, Naboth up here. They like the colors. Now, here are the most recent ones he, he sent to us. I'm not sure where this is. He didn't say. Look how dry and bleak this is. Looks like this gentleman, like they're carrying spears here. I hope that they're friendly. Here's another picture. The trees. They have uh, goats, sheep. Here's a couple of ladies. I'm not sure what these... These might be roots, I guess, and they're um, wrapping them up in something. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, latest fad, I guess, here. The, the, their, uh, their apparel is quite different than ours. Here's a picture, I guess, of some of the homes that they live in. Down at the end, this is a swing set. So this must be a park. You notice you haven't seen any concrete. And you won't. Here's a closer picture of a house. That was, it's remarkable how they've weaved all this together. I'm sure it it's, it's, uh, keeps the rain out. Uh, they have a porch here coming out. And this is to keep the cows in. I guess it goes right into the house there. And I didn't know they had camels in his area, but here's camels all over the place here. 
Here's a guy walking by. This is probably the kind of territory that Pastor Naboth is accustomed to when he's going and when he goes to other countries. Uh, he travels through all types of terrain. Uh, this is a, a picture of, I'm not sure where it is, but on my computer at home, I blew things up to where I could see. There's writing on this building here. And I, can't, I found out that's a hotel. Over here is a clinic. And over here is some kind of uh, service and restrooms over in here. So they have the, notice it's all dirt. They have the cows going right through here with all the people around. That is evidently Pastor Nabus' world that he's used to. And yet he is deeply committed to the Lord and very thankful for the support that all of you are participating in because we have, uh, we support him monthly. And we just recently bought him a, a computer, a laptop, so that he can um, keep his, his things on there. Anyway, that's some of the pictures that I thought you might be interested in of the people that uh, Country Bible Church supports and that Jenny, it's F5. Just escape. Okay, thank you. All right. <laughs> Uh, there's a, uh, a marvelous ministry there and I think that we'll start maybe putting as insert some of the emails that he sends us. It's very informative, but I thought you'd be interested in that. Okay, where are we going now? Well, we're going into the Old Testament. And... You can open your Bibles, if you'd like, to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Now, you may be wondering, I'm going to try to address something that you're probably already uh, wondering. And that would be, why Joshua? Why are we going to the book of Joshua? Well, here's one reason if you look on the board. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. I want you all, now that you're in Joshua, to turn to 2 Timothy. The reason I say that is because we're not even going to get to the first verse in Joshua today because this is all going to be introduction. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Why go to Joshua? Well, the question would be, why not? Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, that is the translation, but I've grown accustomed to changing that translation a bit because that inspiration of God is actually one word in the Greek and that's theonoustos. And that means it is theos comes from the Greek for God and noustos comes from uh, the spirit. Our, uh, the, the word uh, new actually comes from pneuma 
And the pneuma can be either a spirit, it can be breath, it can be wind. In this case, it would be breathe. So all Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. The writers just didn't sit down and start writing and come up with some things, concocting uh, stories. This is God's revelation to us as God breathed. Now, what I want you to do in 2 Timothy 3.16 is to underline all Scripture. Front to back. Genesis to Revelation. All Scripture is God-breathed, is inspired. And it is profitable for doctrine. It is profitable for you. But it's only profitable if you know it, if you read it, if you meditate on it, if you apply it. So it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Ah, this is something that a lot of people do not like. There's a lot of churches that you can go to today around the world and you will never be reproved from the Bible because they don't teach it. They're there to fan the flames of ego and they don't want anyone to actually be offended by what the Bible says. But if you go to a church and the Bible has not reproved you, then the pastor's not doing his job. It means correction. We are to be corrected. And then another, that is actually reproof is somewhat of a synonym for the next thing, for correction. Who wants to be corrected? None of us. But that's what the Bible does. It corrects us. It is for instruction in righteousness. Instruction in righteousness simply means we need to know what to do, how to do it, and do a right thing in a right way. Righteousness is being right. But not I told you so type right. Being right with regards to the absolute standard which is God's Word. That the man of God, and the man of course doesn't mean just men. This is all inclusive. It means mankind. May be perfect. Now that word perfect don't think that you're going to get enough doctrine and you're going to grow enough to where someday you're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. There's only been one human that was ever perfect, and that was the God-man, Jesus Christ. It means complete. It means finished. Completed product. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We're not here just to how much fun we can get out of life. And we're not here to be served. We are here to serve and to do good. The reason I use the King James Version is because it has a certain canter to it, a meter. It just really flows. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Instead of perfect, you might say complete. You see why I like the King James, at least in this verse. That's the way that I memorize this verse. And I go to a New American Standard and I, I just, for some reason, it kind of trips me up. Because when it comes to the resonance 
and the the meter, the flow, the King James Bible cannot be beat. But as far as accuracy, uh, we like to go to the New American Standard. It's not perfect in its accuracy, but it's probably the closest to the original. So why are we going to the book of to the book of Joshua is because it's part of the word of God. Well, what is it about? Joshua is about God's chosen people, the Israelites, who cross a river and they go into the promised land. They go in to uh, take the, the land that is full of uh, ferocious, wicked pagans. Remember what happened the first time they got to the border and Moses sent the spies into the land to find out what it was and when they came back, do you remember what the people did? They had a big pity party. They all cried and none of them were trusting the Lord to go into the land. And so they had to cool their heels out into in the desert for 40 years. They were launching out into the unknown. They didn't know what they were going to face. And so they had to trust God every step of the way. And so there's parallels to that in our life. We're on a journey also. We're on a journey to the promised land. Where's the promised land? Heaven is our promised land. But we don't go straight to heaven when we believe in Jesus Christ, do we? We remain on earth, and you can look at it as a journey. And there's a lot of things that we can glean and learn from what is written in the book of Joshua because we're on a similar journey. And we too have to deal with ruthless people, do we not? We too are launching out into the unknown. When you wake up in the morning, you may have plans to do a particular routine, but you have no idea what's in store for you that day, do you? So every day, in a sense, is a journey. And we don't know what's going to happen. And that has a good side and a bad side to it. Wouldn't it be boring wouldn't it be drudgery if every day you knew for certain that it was going to be the same as the day before, the next day, the next day, and so on? I'm glad it's not that way because we have variety to say the least. Even if you go to a job that is boring to you and you do the same thing every day, you don't know that, that it's going to be that same way the next day. You might not even make it to work. You don't know if your car is going to start. You don't know if you're maybe going to run out of gas, get in a traffic jam, get in a wreck. And once you get, get there, you have no idea what the other people are going to do. You see, we interact with other people, and there is the, there is the a question mark there. We don't know what they're thinking or what they're going to do. So every day we get into the unknown, and... It's where, the, where the, the journey for the believer starts the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ. And it ends for us, at least on this earth, whenever we die physically. 
So that is another way that you can look at the journey from the time that you believe in Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that don't know where they're going. You know, if you're going to go on a journey, it's a good idea to know where you're going. So I'm going to take a trip. Where? Well, I don't know. Okay. What direction are you going? Well, I'm not sure. Don't have, don't have any plans. I'm just going to travel. That's the way a lot of people go through life. They don't have a destination in plan, and they don't know where they're going. When it comes to what their life is all about after salvation, they don't have a clue. So they go around in circles. They don't make any progress spiritually because they have no, no, um, no definite plans in their life. They, they really don't know what it's about. Their life is essentially secular, meaning it's without God, because they don't know the Bible. They don't know Bible doctrine, we would say. They have no idea that their life, what their life should be about after they're saved. And now, God has a plan and purpose for their lives. Every believer, God has a plan and a purpose. But the problem is they don't know uh, what it is. And here's the main thing right here. They don't know that not knowing is the problem. How can, you, how can you know what the problem is when the problem is not knowing? And so what you don't know can hurt you. It can devastate you. Now, the reason that we're here and we study the Bible and we study the Bible intensely isn't that we can all be scholars and go out and strut about and show everybody how brilliant we are. And we're playing the uh, spiritual king of the mountain with folks. That's not why it's what it's about. But we're on a journey, and if you're going to be on a journey, you better know what your destination is and you better be prepared. Uh, they go to church, those that, who do, most of the time to hear Bible stories. They get no sound exegetical teaching. In fact, there's a lot of people who would come to a church, and there have been people who have come to this church, and they're used to Bible stories, and when I, especially if they come on a Tuesday or Thursday night, and I start going into some of the Greek, they start cutting their eyes towards the door. This is not church to them. Church is something to make you feel good. So, since they don't know what God's plan is, they have no doctrine, they don't know, they think that what life is really about is to be as nice and moral as they possibly can and to continue to go to a Disneyland church and hope for the best. What do I mean by Disneyland church? Why do people go to Disneyland? Fun. Entertainment. Everybody's there at your beck and call. And unfortunately, that's what churches that are not teaching the Word of God are. A lot of times they're just, uh, you could call them glorified country clubs. 
There's beautiful music, power of positive thinking messages, invigorating surroundings that are emotionally uh, charge people up. And they think that certainly this must be spiritual because they are charged up and they are emotionally high, but there's one problem with that. Those emotions never last. Sometimes they don't even carry out to the parking lot. You can get all revved up about the Lord, but if you don't have any substance to what you are being taught, then it's a feel-good thing. And you go out into the parking lot, and you're leaving the church, and someone cuts in front of you, and all that feel-good is gone. Now there is hate, vindictiveness, anger. I dare that person cut him. I had the right of way. This is right after they get out of church. Some of you are laughing. Do you identify with that? They don't know what their true purpose, mission, or goal is in life. And that's a sad thing. When you don't know what your purpose is, and you don't know what the target is, you certainly can't hit it, and it becomes a life of vanity. It's vacuous. It's empty. Something is missing. So they have no motivation to reach for the prize of their high calling in Christ. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. For those of you who don't have a Bible, there it is on the board. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. I want you to underline or circle in your Bible, prize. And the last word, at least in the New American Standard, is win. We are to reach for the prize. We are to run in such a way that we win. Now you can go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. There it is on the board. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know what I want you to underline there? Prize. Circle it. Press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are called to what you might say go for the gold. Not material goal, but something much more valuable. Now go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Here it is on the board. Let no one keep defrauding you from your what? Prize. Circle it. This journey through life isn't about surviving. It's about reaching for the prize. God doesn't want us to be survivors. He wants us to be overcomers. Now, this is the sad thing. Probably most of you, uh, there may be someone here that has misconstrued these verses, but most believers would misconstrue these verses because they would think that the prize or the goal that they're reaching for is heaven. Why would you want to reach for something you already have? The goal, the prize, is not heaven. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a done deal. We have eternal security because of who and what Jesus Christ is, not who and what we are. And we understand that. But... They work hard and they strive every day of their lives. They're concerned. Am I going to make it to heaven? I better be good today. How many good things can I come up with today to be approved by God? And you know what the problem is? Ignorance. They're ignorant. They don't know the spiritual things of the church age. They are not grace-oriented. It's a, it's a horrible thing to struggle with the idea of whether you're really going to heaven or not. For a long time, well, fairly long time, as a young believer, I struggled with that because I thought that you had to feel like you're saved. If you don't feel like you're saved, then it's a possibility you might not be saved. I went to a church that had altar calls. That's where at the end of the service, the pastor invites people to come down and to give their life to Christ or have uh, the rededication of your life and these type of things. And I wore the carpet out because I was so afraid. Maybe it really didn't take. Or maybe I really am not saved. I better go down to make sure. And there was, I, I thought one time at least I was coming down the aisle and I saw the pastor kind of go, not him again. I, maybe it wasn't, but I thought I saw that uh, little nuance there. And when I finally got some doctrine, when I finally recognized that I'm set free from struggling with that, I just was elated. And I've been elated ever since. I don't know about you. That's one battle I don't fight any longer. I don't struggle with that. Why? Because I've had pastors in the past 
and believers reaffirm the fact that we are saved by grace. And grace is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift from God. Finally, that dawned on me, and I don't fight that one anymore, but a lot of people still do. Now, the journey for the believer, where is it? What, what is our journey? It's to go from spiritual babyhood to spiritual maturity. Because if you make it to maturity, guess what? There's a prize awaiting you. Wonderful, unbelievable, indescribable rewards and decorations and crowns and privileges and opportunities. And here's the best part. You can't lose them because they're eternal. That's the journey. That's why we're still left on planet Earth. Because when we do that, when we go to spiritual babyhood, and that's what essentially we all were when we believed in Jesus Christ, we didn't know the things of the Spirit. We didn't know the, certainly didn't know the spiritual dynamics of the church age. And so it, the challenge is to go from there to maturity because at maturity, then God... You know what you do when you get to, to spiritual maturity? And if you hold the ground, you're glorifying Christ. And that's why we're here. We are here to glorify Jesus Christ. And we, we glorify Him, not necessarily by what we do, but what we know and apply of His Word. So you can't hear that great accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant, which should be our goal, because we all are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, to decide whether we are going to be rewarded, decorated, or whether we're just going to be ashamed. And you cannot hear those great words if you remain in spiritual ignorance. God uses prepared believers. He doesn't use ignorant ones. Now, the challenges along our journey to spiritual maturity can be compared to the challenges that were faced by Joshua and the Israelites and also the pioneers who crossed this great land in covered wagons. Oh, that was... You talk about a hardy stock. You talk about people who had courage and bravery to set out on the unknown. And they had a destination in mind. So we have challenges along our journey, and they can be compared to the Israelites and the covered wagons. Now, both the Israelites and the pioneers who crossed this country had similar challenges. Here's some of the challenges that they had. Crossing raging rivers. We don't ever think about that today. I mean, we're gone. We're on an interstate. We're on a concrete superhighway. And we might get a glimpse as we look over to see if there's a river there or not, but we never think about that. This was major challenges. When we get to uh, Joshua chapter 3, they're going to be crossing the river Jordan. And I'm going to do a lot more into that, that then. There's a lot of parallels. But 
the first thing, remember when uh, God called Abram, what did he have to do? He had to cross the river, didn't he? And now he's calling on the Israelites. First thing they had to do was what? Cross a river. And we're going to see it was a very dangerous endeavor. You see, God always calls on us to trust Him. That means there's always going to be challenges and tests. God could have said, uh, Abraham, I've got a land I want you to go through, go to, and don't worry about the river because I'm going to supernaturally lift you up and put you on the other side, and you're going to have a straight shot right to the promised land, and it's going to be flowing with milk and honey. Just go in there. It's going to be wonderful. That's not what God did, did it? Because Abraham had to learn on his way to Canaan a lot of lessons. And the number one lesson that he had to learn, the number one lesson that we have to learn is to trust the Lord. We're on a journey, folks, and we all have challenges. We all have problems and woes. And through this entire journey, from the time that you believe in Jesus Christ to the time we exit this earth, God is trying to train us and teach us to trust Him. So they had to, they had to cross rivers. They were going to be introduced to pagan hostiles. For the Israelites, it was the Canaanites, the Gergesites, the Jebusites, all a bunch of sites. There were probably parasites there too, I guess. I don't know. And, they, the, and the people in covered wagons had to face the Indians, and they were pagans also. They had to face wild animals, searing heat, frigid cold, lack of water, lack of food, fatigue, storms, Mud, rattlesnakes, horse flies, equipment breakdowns, illness, injury, treacherous gorges, and high mountains. And that's the short list. And through it all, in every one of those endeavors, they were to trust the Lord. What did they do? When they in the covered wagons, when a wheel broke. I mean, we get all bent out of shape when we have a flat tire. It ruins our day. It might ruin our week. And we want to tell everybody about how horrible it was. What will we do? Some people just get on their cell phone and call the, um, what is the, triple A, yeah, triple A. And they're inconvenienced for a few moments because they can't get to where they want. They come out and they take care of it. But there may be still uh, some of your uh, more hardy stock that gets out, jacks that, that, that uh, car up or truck, whatever it is, get the spare out, put it on there, and you're on your way. And you get maybe your hands a little bit dirty, and that's about it. I don't think they carried spare wheels on those covered wagons. And it won't go with three wheels. When you had a wheel break, you better be doing some faith resting or you're going to do a meltdown right there. Now, I have seen what they've done, what some of them would do. Ingenious. 
they would cut the back half of the wagon off and they would go on in two wheels. You know what that meant, though? Half of their stuff is left behind. And going across the prairie and mountains and gorges and everything in a wagon with four wheels can't be all that comfortable. But on two wheels? Horse flies. You know what made me think about this horse fly? Put horse flies in there. I know they had them. It was one, one was bothering me about an hour before I wrote this. I was out in my garden, and it's way behind. I'm, I'm way behind on what I need to be doing. And I was all intent trying to do something. It was driving me nuts. One horse fly. Well, y'all get the point. Every morning they woke up, they had no idea the trials they would face or the problems that would be developing. They had to do something that we have to do. They have to be willing to orient and adjust to the circumstances. You know, we have a very high lifestyle according to the rest of the world. And we don't want to adapt and adjust we want our coffee in the morning ready for us hot we have it on the timer we like our cruise control Boop. we like the warmed up seats when we go out to our car we like to have cell phones that we can not only communicate with everybody if we're in a problem we can I'm afraid that there's going to have to be a lot of adapting. There's going to have to uh, be a lot of orienting to different circumstances. Can you do it? The book of Joshua encourages us because it shows how the Lord delivers His people and blesses them as a nation. And He will do that to any nation who trusts and obeys Him. That's the key. He told them so. Trust me and obey me, and I'll see you through. It inspires us individually to be strong and courageous as we face the personal calamities in our own life. What's the calamity in your life? I would, I would imagine that if all of us took the time, now we would never do this because it would be invading our, per, our, our privacy, but if we all sat down and made a list, a comprehensive list of the things that we have to deal with in our lives right now, the challenges, the struggles, put it all down, and you all listed them, how long would it take to read them? Quite a while, huh? And they would all be advanced. They would all be different. But we'd have, we all have one thing in common. We're all on the journey and we all have challenges and problems, exigencies that we don't even know what to do sometimes. That's what our life is like. And it's designed to be like that because the Lord wants you to trust Him. 
One thing I didn't have on there is they got lost. They didn't have the maps. They didn't have every so far down the journey a marker. Okay, you are here. The next town is this. This is where the water is. And what do we have today? We have signs that says, next stop, there's a McDonald's and there's a Burger King and there's a hotel and there's all these types of things. Sometimes they got lost. Sometimes we get lost. They had to recognize that they had to depend on the Lord, especially their leaders. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'm going to show you a few things on the board here. Uh, the title. What is the title about? The title of this book. Of course, you know the title is Joshua. It's interesting that the title of the book is the name of the most prominent person in the book, and it's also what the book is about. The name Joshua means Jehovah, the Savior, or Jehovah saves, the Lord saves. It is Hebrew form for the name Jesus. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. Just a minute. <clears throat> Here it is. Here it is in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is Yahashua. Yahushua. There it is in the Hebrew. And then it is translated into English, Joshua. In the Greek, it's Iesus. I-E-S-O-U-S. And in English, it's translated Jesus. So, Yahushua, Iesus, Jesus. Same word. Same name. It means God is salvation. The Hebrew, Joshua, that is the English form, is used 218 times in the New American Standard Version. So even looking at the title, we find out that this is very interesting that you don't go to many books where you have the title being the, also the name of the most prominent person in the book and the meaning of the, of the book also, or what the book is about. The person. Joshua was born as a slave in Egypt and was probably the age of Caleb, whom he is sometimes associated with. He must have been about 40 years old at the time of the exodus. He was the son of Nun, of the tribe of Ephraim, and the successor of Moses as the leader of Israel. He is first mentioned, the first time you see his name appear in the Bible, is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 9, where Moses instructed him to choose some men and to go out and fight the Amalekites at Rephidim. And he decisively won that battle. Uh, you may have remembered, if you read this, Moses had his hands up in the air. He was praying. And as long as his hands were up in the air, they were winning the battle. But 
his arms got tired and they started going down, so they had to get supports and put under his arms so he could keep his arms up. Anyway, that was the first time that we see his name mentioned. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. Moses took him along when he went up Mount Sinai. Remember that? And God gave him the Ten Commandments. That's in Exodus chapter 24, verse 13. He was very, extremely close to Moses. And you know what? Sometimes it's hard to be the second in command. Sometimes it's hard to support the one that is in charge. But I think of of, uh, David and Jonathan with regards to this. Because remember, Jonathan was the heir apparent. In other words, he was uh, Saul's eldest son, and he was to be king after Saul died. However, God said, no, David is going to be king. Now, David and Jonathan were friends. And there's, in First Samuel, it's a beautiful story about how close they were. And Jonathan said, far be it from me to go against the Lord. I totally back David as being king of Israel. And that's the way Joshua was. He never competed with Moses. He was complete uh, and total support to him the whole time. He was one of the 12 spies who was sent to check out the promised land. And he and Caleb were the only ones who trusted the Lord and urged the people to take the land. That's in Numbers 14, 6 through 9. See, he already had a pattern of trusting the Lord. He was The Lord said, go in and take the land. I will fight your battles. But the people didn't believe him, and they had a big big, uh, crying session. The Lord says, okay, you're not going to trust me? Get back out in the desert. And all the adults over 20 died in that desert. And a new batch are the ones that Caleb took across into Canaan. He was originally named Hosea, which means help. But Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means the Lord helps or the Lord saves. That's in Numbers chapter 16, verse 16. The Lord instructed Moses to commission Joshua before the entire congregation in Numbers 27, 18 through 23. And then later the Lord commissioned Joshua himself, and here it is, a count of it in Deuteronomy 31, 14. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of the meeting, that would be the tabernacle, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went up and presented themselves at the tent of the meeting. Here later in verse 23, Then he, that would be God, commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous. We're going to hear that over and over and over and over again in the book of Joshua, especially right there at the beginning. We are not to be afraid. The forces aligned against us are mighty, but greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ has already secured the victory. We're on the winning team. So we are to be brave and courageous. So verse 23, Then he commissioned Joshua and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land and I, uh, which I swore to them, and I will be with you. I will be with you. Never forget that. He never loses or forsakes us. Six nations and 31 kings were conquered by him, that is Joshua. Joshua 11, 18 through 23 and 12 through 24. Actually, they weren't conquered by Joshua, 
they were con- the, the victory was the Lord. The Lord gave Joshua the victory. But that's, look at thirty uh, six nations and 31 kings. The people came to revere Joshua as they did Moses, Joshua 4.14. A gate in the wall around Jerusalem was named after him during the late monarchical, uh, monarchical period, period of the kings in 2 Kings 23.8. Joshua has been regarded as a type of Christ in Hebrews 4.8 in the following particulars. In the name common to both. They had the same name. Joshua brings the people into the possession of the promised land as Jesus brings His people to the heavenly Canaan. We're on a journey and the Lord's going to take us through it. And the third, as Joshua succeeded Moses, so the gospel succeeds the law. And that was taken by Easton's Bible Dictionary. He died at the age of 110 after he had fulfilled his commission. He was buried in the land allotted to his tribe, which was Ephraim, in Joshua 24, verses 29 through 30. The authorship, uh, there's, there's every reason for concluding that the uniform tradition of the Jews is correct when they assign the authorship of the book to Joshua. In other words, he wrote, most of it, except concluding sections, the last verses of Joshua 24, 29 through 33, were added by some other hand. That too was from Eastern, uh, from Easton's Bible Dictionary. The place about Canaan. I think I'm going to have to reserve that for next time because we're out of time. Canaan is a, is a place of, of, of much interest. In fact, the Bible says that what was Canaan, which is now called Israel, would be a cup of trembling to the whole world. The eyes of the entire world will be on that particular spot in the Mideast that's now called Israel. We'll pick this up next time. Now, everyone, please bow your heads, close your eyes. There may be someone here who is an unbeliever. You're on a journey. Where is your journey going to end? You can be guaranteed that it's going to end in victory, great promise, by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment of time, you can do so. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross and died on the cross. He died on the cross for your sins, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will. Believe in Him and Him alone. Eternal life is a free gift that you receive by simply believing in Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with the idea of where your eternal destiny is going to be, it can end today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, thank You for this time that we have embarked upon this great book of Joshua. There's so much there for us to learn. We pray that we will be alert that we will be humble, and that we will learn much from it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.